Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So, let's start off with pulmonary function test. So, PFTs is to the pulmonologist, just like the ECG is to the cardiologist. It's always my go-to test. Someone comes in and says, hey, Dr. Raj, I'm short of breath. I have dyspnea on exertion. So, three things come to mind. Are you anemic? Do you have heart disease? Or is it the lungs? So we could rule out anemia with a quick CBC. I could rule out cardiac with maybe an ECG and an echo. And I'm kind of left with maybe it's my fault. Maybe it is the lungs. So usually my go-to test on any board exam would be, hey, get a nice chest X-ray and get some PFTs, you know? So PFTs in itself are going to have three main parts to them. So the first part is going to be talking about the lung volumes, the most important volume always being total lung capacity. Then the second one is going to be spirometry. And when you do spirometry, you're looking for my favorite word, flow. So flow, specifically airflow, is going to be volume over time. So tell the patient to take a deep breath in, blast it out, and they measure volume that's going to be expelled out of the lungs over a period of time, which will be in mLs per second. And we can get things like the forced expiratory volume in one second, the forced vital capacity, so spirometry, very important. The last thing is going to be the DLCO, diffusion-limited carbon monoxide. And DLCO basically tells me, is there going to be a problem diffusing a gas, specifically things like oxygen, through the alveoli, through the interstitium, and into the capillaries? So there is there a diffusion problem? So all three things together make up a pulmonary function test. So now that I got my PFTs, remember my patient, hey, I'm short of breath. I get my PFTs, I look at it, and I'll put them into one of the two categories. Is it obstructive or restrictive? If it's going to be an obstructive lung disease, the one PFT parameter that defines a disease as obstructive is the ratio of the FEV1 over the FBC. That ratio is going to be low. How low? Well, less than 70% of predicted. How did it turn out to be low is because when we talk about obstructive lung diseases, they will affect the FEV1 much, much more than the FBC. They're both going to be low, but the FEV1 is much lower. So when you do the mathematics, that's going to give you a small value. So when we think about obstructive lung diseases, I put the two classic ones that make up classic COPD, emphysema and chronic bronchitis. But sure, you could put in asthma. Sure, you could put in bronchiectasis. 
but let's just play with uh, emphysema and chronic bronchitis. Both are going to have a low ratio, less than 70% of predicted. And notice that there is a line right down the middle between both. So what PFT parameter helps you determine if someone is more like emphysema or more like chronic bronchitis? They're both obstructive. The answer is the DLCO. And the DLCO tends to be much lower in emphysema and relatively spared in chronic bronchitis because in chronic bronchitis, that's a disease of the proximal airways. And we just don't do gas exchange and bronchi or trachea or anything like that. So this is going to be when we talk about obstructive lung diseases. On the other side, it could be restrictive. And what one PFT parameter defines a disease as restrictive? Well, the answer is going to be the total lung capacity. How low is it going to be? Well, it is going to be low and it's going to be less than 80% of predicted, less than 80% of predicted. And when I think of restrictive lung diseases, I put them into two broader categories. Is there a problem inside the lung itself? We call that intrinsic restrictive, or is the problem outside the lung? And what are going to be some classic problems where some could have a restrictive lung pattern, problems outside the lungs? Well, it could be obesity. It could be kyphoscoliosis. It could be some kind of neuromuscular disease. All those will be extrinsic restrictive lung disease. If the problem's inside the lung itself, the lung parenchyma, well, I think about the classic example of interstitial lung disease with the flagship being pulmonary fibrosis. So once again, when you look at this, there's this line right down the middle. What one PFT parameter really distinguishes an intrinsic versus extrinsic restrictive lung disease? The answer, once again, is the DLCO. And you can imagine when you have a disease like pulmonary fibrosis, which is intrinsic in the lung, a gas will have difficulty diffusing through that thickened interstitium. So the DLCO is going to be low. So when we talk about, you know, anything outside the lung, like kyphoscoliosis or neuromuscular, the DLCO is going to be spared. When we talk about restrictive lung diseases, people always ask me, well, what is the ratio going to be? And remember, it's usually going to be normal or high. And I always wondered, well, why isn't it one or the other? Why is it normal or high? Well, when we think about intrinsic lung diseases like pulmonary fibrosis, you know, the FVC is much, much, much more affected than the FEV1. So when we do the mathematics for a pulmonary fibrosis patient, you can imagine if the FEV1 is slow, which it is, but the FBC is much, much, much lower, the ratio is going to be what? High. But when it's extrinsic, like obesity, kyphoscoliosis, neuromuscular, both the FEV1 and FBC are equally reduced, and therefore the ratio would be what? Normal. Awesome. So this is going to be how I categorize pulmonary function testing. So when we talk about board exams and in general, in your office, you could basically do spirometry. And that's probably my go-to answer for most uh, questions on the board exams. It's simple. You could hold it in your hand, a spirometer, and you could get most of the lung volumes, get a beautiful flow volume loop. PFDs need to be done in a pulmonary function lab. And you do that because you want to get values like the total lung capacity. And it's really tricky to get the residual volume. So that's why we do it in a pulmonary function lab. Diffusion-limited carbon monoxide, we talked about that. Literally, DLCO is giving carbon monoxide and watching the carbon monoxide diffuse through the avillary, through the interstitium, and into the capillary itself. That gets done in a PFT lab. And of course, any type of challenge testing gets done in a PFT lab soon. And I got to tell you folks, don't 
order PFTs for everyone on board exams or all your patients because it's not an easy test. It's like I'm almost a 60 to 90 minute test with some person just yelling at you. In fact, I put my dad through a PFT you know, a few years ago. And you know what? Yeah, he's still not talking to me. So <laughs> just be careful when you put someone through a pulmonary function test. So here's the bottom line point, everyone. Um, in general, the ratio is great to assess obstructive lung disease. Less than 70% of predicted is abnormal. TLC is is what defines a disease as restrictive, less than 80% are predicted. And the DLCO, once again, is giving the patient carbon monoxide and watching carbon monoxide diffuse through the avillary, through the interstitium, into the capillaries. So it determines the, the capabilities of getting gas, such as oxygen, into the lungs itself. So here's spirometry. So basically, when you do a spirometer, it's like a small handheld device. You tell the patient to take a deep breath in. <gasps> That's TLC all the way up here, blast it out. And as we're blasting it out, the spirometry measures things as you're blasting it out. You can measure the forced expiratory volume in one second. And from there, they keep on blowing, blowing, blowing all the way to the end. You get the vital capacity, which is at the end of expiration. And all that volume below that is what we call the residual volume. So this is normal spirometry. Let's cruise over here to obstructive. Look at TLC, a lot more elevated. An elevated TLC does not mean obstruction. It could be someone who is an athlete. But look at when we tell someone with obstructive lung disease to blast it out, how long it takes to go all the way to the end. And look at that FEV1. It's much, much more effective than the FBC. And therefore, the FEV1 is low. The FBC is low because look at this high, high residual volume. And when we talk about restrictive, which is right here in the middle, well, if we talk about the restrictive lung pattern looks very similar to normal. Why is the FEV1 low? Why is the FVC low? Because the total lung volumes are just low to begin with. But when we think about a restrictive intrinsic lung disease like pulmonary fibrosis, remember the FVC is more affected than the FEV1. Therefore, the ratio will be high. So let's take a look at lung volumes really quickly. So as you're breathing in and out comfortably, that's called your tidal volume. Take a deep breath in. Inspiratory reserve volume, a deep breath out, expiratory reserve volume. And what is the capacity is two or more volumes added together. So if we add the inspiratory reserve volume plus the tidal volume plus the expiratory reserve volume, all these three will give you vital capacity. And of course, you could make the vital capacity force, come to blast it out. And then you put an F in front of it, that's your FVC. But when we talk about restricted diseases, you really want that total lung capacity. How do we get that? Well, we need to actually get that residual volume. That's what they came to the PFT lab for. And if you add vital capacity to residual volume, you get total lung capacity. So DLCO, once again, what happens in the lab, we literally give you carbon monoxide. And remember, most of us have very, very little carbon monoxide in our blood. So gases go from areas of high pressure to low pressure. It should diffuse over unless you have problems in your alveoli. Let's say you have atelectasis, problems in your interstitium, pulmonary fibrosis, or if you have problems in the capillaries like a vasculitis or pulmonary hypertension, then you'll have the trouble diffusing that carbon monoxide into the bloodstream. And the key teaching point here when we talk about DLCO, that who picks up the carbon monoxide, everyone? It's hemoglobin. You know it loves it. So there are things that can give you a falsely elevated DLCO. What are those things? Well, anytime you have more blood volume going to the pulmonary capillaries, 
Anytime you have more blood, more RBCs, more hemoglobin in the pulmonary capillaries. So polycythemia will give you an elevated DLCO. Increasing blood flow to the pulmonary capillaries give it falsely increased DLCO. So the key thing is the second bullet point. Remember, in theory, we correct DLCO for things like hemoglobin. Though in a board exam, they'll never make you correct for it. Low volume loops, you get one anytime you get a pulmonary function test. And a flow volume loop is basically looking about the shape. So let's look at this graph up here. On the y-axis is flow volume over time. On the x-axis is just volume by itself. So when you look at the bottom part of this graph, it's inspiratory. The top part of this graph is expiratory. Patient takes a deep breath in. And then what they do, they blast it out. When they're blasting it out, this is part of the expiratory flow. And you make this beautiful curve here and for normal. If you have an obstructive lung pattern, look at the height of the expiratory flow. It's markedly reduced. Why? Because when you have uh, obstructive lung disease, where's the obstruction? It's on exhalation. So you can imagine it's hard to get the air out. So it's going to be much lower than normal on the expiratory flow. And it usually takes a long, long time to get all the air out of the lungs. So that would be an obstructive lung pattern. Restrictive looks just like normal, except it's going to be smaller. But what may they ask you on boards is when you think of that kind of these funky shapes over here, everyone. So in this case, it's flat on the top and flat in the bottom. In the middle, it's flat on inspiration. On the last one, flat on expiration. When I see these kind of unique shapes, I call that upper airway obstruction. For the boards, what's my upper airway? Probably going to be the trachea, you know? And if it's flat on the top and the bottom, I call that a fixed upper airway obstruction. If it's flat on the top or the bottom, inspiration or expiration, we call that a variable obstruction. So classic example of a fixed upper airway obstruction has to be tracheal stenosis, repeated intubations. So you can imagine it's fixed, difficulty getting the air in, difficulty getting the air out. When you have a flattening on inspiration, think about someone who has vocal cord dysfunction, usually going to be a woman, it's going to be history of anxiety, misdiagnosed for asthma, repeated history of intubations, but no wheezing in the lungs itself. So you can imagine what happens is that on inspiration, your vocal cords should abduct, but unfortunately, in these cases, they close, they abduct, therefore can't get the air in. The last one, or it's flattening on the expiratory part, well, this is something called tracheomalacia. So what causes it? Same thing, a lot of intubations. So when you get lots of intubations, well, you may get stenosis or you may get malacia. You never know what you're going to get. So what happens with tracheomalacia is that the trachea has cartilage, those cartilage rings on the anterior part of the trachea. So it damages it. So usually on expiration, when you're blowing out, the trachea does collapse, just does, you know what I mean? But what keeps it kind of open is those tracheal rings, the cartilage. But if they're damaged, what happens on expiration? Boom, it almost shuts all the way. So on expiration, it's flattened, but no problem getting the air in. So just recognize these patterns. And we talked about the most common uh, clinical scenario on your board exams. Everyone always asks me, hey, how are they going to actually put all this PFT stuff into a question? Let's do it together. This is going to be a 60 year old woman evaluated for a four month history of progressive fatigue and dyspnea on exertion. Doesn't smoke, denies chest pain, palpitations, dizziness, and syncope. Uh oh, she has a 12 year history of scleroderma. And remember, scleroderma, 
they're going to talk about systemic sclerosis. Systemic sclerosis has two main subtypes. It's going to be uh, a limited scleroderma. Many of you call that the crest, or it could be diffuse, you know, and both of those will have involvement of every single organ in the body. And scleroderma, everyone, does that, can that affect the lungs? Definitely. There are things that I think about, whether it's going to be interstitial lung disease or pulmonary hypertension, you got to think about cardiovascular problems when you think about scleroderma patients. So she also has GERDs and Raynaud's. Her current meds are a calcium channel blocker, proton pump inhibitor, and some nitroglycerin ointment for her Raynaud's. On exam, she's a febrile normal tensive. She has a loud P2 with, uh-oh, buzzword, fixed splitting. Lungs are clear to auscultation. The abdomen is unremarkable. Sclerodactyly and pink scars over the fingertips. There is no peripheral edema. They do a CBC and ESR. They're normal. Do an ECG, and it shows right ventricular hypertrophy. And the chest x-ray seems normal. Uh-oh, there they are. PFTs. So what did they give us? They gave us the FBC is 84% predicted. The ratio is 80% predicted. And the DLCO is low at 44% predicted. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? That was quick. So everyone kind of gravitated towards uh, letter B. All right, let me close this over here. So when I look at this, which ones would I take off right away? And this is just me, everyone. Don't be angry. And please don't destroy your computer. You paid a lot of money for it. The first one that I would take off is B. Why would I take off B? Well, probably because what did the chest x-ray show in this case? Let me see if I can go back. It was normal. And lung occultation was totally clear. So it's probably not going to be a interstitial lung disease. Though I could see why many people gravitate towards that with a low TLCO. I would also take off C, left ventricular failure, because what did the ECG show? Right ventricular failure. So B and C are gone. It really comes down to A and D. So fixed splitting, everyone, that was kind of like the buzzword right there, right? What does fixed splitting mean? Well, it just means that, you know, usually uh, when I take a breath in on inspiration, that my pulmonic valve will close second, my aortic valve will close first. But when you have fixed splitting, that means whether I'm taking a breath in or taking a breath out, the pulmonic valve will always close second. And what can cause that? Well, I think many people gravitate towards ASD and VSD, which is great. If you have an ASD, like the question was saying, what type of shunting do you usually get on an ASD? It's going to be shunting from the left to the right, high pressure to low pressure. So if you have more blood shunting from the left atrium to the right atrium, that means more of that blood volume is going to go through the pulmonic valve to the pulmonary arteries to the pulmonary capillaries. Blood contains what? RBCs. RBCs contain what? Hemoglobin. And what do we say about the DLCO? That if you give more blood flow, more RBCs, more hemoglobin, the DLCO should be falsely elevated. I agree. It's not elevated here. It's pretty low. So it's not going to be A. So what else gives you a fixed splitting? Really, really bad pulmonary arterial hypertension. Is pulmonary arterial hypertension unfortunately common in people with scleroderma? Yes. Will that give you a normal spirometry and an, probably a, a isolated low DLCO? Yes. Now, you really couldn't call this restrictive because what lung parameter did I not give you? That's right. TLC. So the answer here is going to be D. All right. That was a, that was, that was a tough one for 8 o'clock. My bad. Let's talk about asthma, everyone. 
So asthma, high yield for the board exams. So I put asthma into two broad categories. Is it allergic? Other names for that could be extrinsic or atopic. Or non-allergic, other words are non-atopic or intrinsic. And by default, the most common question on the boards are the allergic type. Almost 90% of all asthma you'll come across clinically and on boards will be the allergic asthma. And you always want to identify the triggers. Easier said than done. Think of dander and mold. The thing about the allergic asthma is that things have changed. It's no longer just about here's some albuterol and here's some inhaled steroids. We definitely are using biologics. Anytime you say the word biologics, uh uh-oh, to answer questions correctly, you definitely need to know your immunology. And I just got a little chills when I said the word immunology myself. So I'm going to give you the most important immunology that you need to know for your boards right now. The non-allergic type is only about 10%. And what are the triggers? What are non-allergic type? This could be exercise, cold air, someone smoking and viruses and perfumes, medications. And I noticed I put bronchothermoplasty here. The reason why I put it there, bronchothermoplasty technically got FDA approval for both allergic and non-allergic. But with all these biologics now, I rarely use this procedure, which is kind of barbaric, called bronchothermoplasty. It really is just kind of niche now towards people who have the non-allergic type. So I got a question coming up, and I apologize, but what is the main antigen-presenting cell in the lung for asthmatics? All right. So, you know, for some reason, anytime I give an asthma question and it has to do with any type of cell, everyone always gravitates towards mast cell. I mean, but let's read the question. What is the main antigen-presenting cell in the lung? So does mast cells present antigen? No, you know what they do. What do they do? They get degranulated. They release what? Like histamine and tryptase and stuff like that? Correct. So the only cell here that really presents any antigen to the immune system is what? The macrophages. And that's going to be very important because when we talk about asthma and especially the allergic type, you want to present that antigen to the immune system. So that's going to be part of our innate immune system. So that's going to be very, very important when we talk about antigen presenting cells. Now, one more, and that'll be the last uh, immunology one that we need for the boards, which is what is the main inflammatory cell in the airway of someone who has asthma? What do we got here? All right, cool. So after I kind of really made fun of mast cells and no more, all of a sudden, like something else became the main answer. This is great. And everyone, you are awesome. Great job. It is the ES in the fills. And when we start talking about these biologics, you know, the target cell for these are going to be the eosinophils. That's the main inflammatory uh, cell in the airway of asthmatics. So great job. The answer is B. So that's going to be enough basic science for asthma. (laughs) So let's go back to how do you define asthma? Well, it's chronic. It's it's a chronic inflammatory lung disease where the particles that damage the lung are sensitizing particles. They rev up our immune system. And how do they do that? They get presented to the immune system through our macrophages. And when we think about asthma, it's characterized by two buzzwords, bronchial hyperresponsiveness, that's bronchial hyperreactivity, whether it be a bronchodilation when I give you albuterol or a bronchoconstriction when you're exposed to a certain antigen. Also, there are abnormalities in the smooth muscle meaning that the smooth muscle here in the airways could be thickened, so you can't get airflow in and out. So if you want to diagnose asthma, well, the classic way to do it is traditionally, you get a great history, a great physical examination, and of course, you can make a clinical diagnosis of asthma. But 
on the board exams and in reality, I like to be a little more objective. So what would probably be my go-to test to diagnose uh, asthma objectively is spirometry. All I really need is spirometry. And it's not just spirometry by itself. It's spirometry with bronchodilator response, looking for that bronchohyperreactivity once I give the beta-2 agonist. I look for that 12% increase in the FEV1 or the FBC. Now, sometimes when you take practice questions, they won't put spirometry. They'll put a full PFT with bronchodilator response. That's also a good answer. But truth be told, I really don't need TLC and DLCO just to diagnose asthma. Spirometry with BD response is just as good. Now, if someone has a very atypical presentation of asthma, uh, then you may consider doing a challenge test. And the big word is consider. <laughs> it's, not, it's very barbaric. It's inducing a bronco hyperreactivity in a patient. You're looking after I give methacholine, which is a challenge agent. I give more and more and more methacholine to look to see if the FUV1 or FBC decrease by this time 20%. So it's very barbaric. And I would only do that if there was a very atypical case and I really wanted to be more objective for my asthma. I can't make the diagnosis based on simple spirometry. And the take-home message is always, when is a methacholine challenge test going to be helpful? Is it when the results are positive or when the results are negative? And you know, the answer is when they're negative. Because if you give enough methacholine to anyone, eventually they're going to bronchodilate or constrict. My apologies. So therefore, a positive result really doesn't help me. But if you were to actually uh, not bronchoconstrict after a full methacholine challenge, wow, that tells me that your coughing and wheezing could be from anything in the world except asthma. So it has a very high negative predictive value. And this picture over me over here, it says pheno. I look way too happy in this picture, but uh, basically it's a small little device. You kind of blow into it. Really helpful for allergic asthma because there's a lot of eosinophils in the airways of allergic asthma. They produce nitric oxide. So in the right setting, when they blow into this device, it tells you how much nitric oxide implying the number of eosinophils in the airway. And the American Thoracic Society says, hey, maybe in allergic asthma, this would be a better test to order than putting someone through a challenge test which is barbaric. So when we talk about treatment of asthma, it starts off with lifestyle modifications first. And of course, if you can't uh, let go of the trigger, then you can think about medications. So asthma, if you have traditionally what they call a, a mild intermittent asthma, well, get rid of the triggers and a beta-2 agonist, sure. But the minute you hear, hit the word persistent, persistent asthma and persistent asthma usually has mild moderate and severe the minute you hit mild persistent you need to be on a long-term controller and the answer is going to be inhaled corticosteroids and for board exams i do believe in the step up and step down so you probably start off in the lowest dose of inhaled uh, steroid and work your way up based upon symptoms if they're really really controlled and you have good you know lung function you may want to consider uh, tapering down those inhaled steroids. Of course, if they're flaring up, they're in the emergency department or the ICU, you want to give those steroids more systemically. You can think about oral or IV, depending on how severe they are. Bronchodilators, let's keep it simple for clinical medicine and the boards. It's, there's only two we need to worry about. Beta-2 agonists, which comes in short and 
long acting, and of course, anticholinergics, both short and long acting. And anticholinergics are FDA approved for the treatment of chronic asthma, especially if they cannot tolerate a beta 2 agonist or if they uh, are still symptomatic despite a beta 2 agonist. And in the acute setting, ipratropium bromide really helps patients out combined with short acting albuterol. Leukotriene inhibitors is an oral medication that can be added on as you move from a mild persistent to a moderate persistent. Leukotrienes, um, this is our picture of ooh, a USMD step one arachidonic acid pathway where we talk about phospholipase A2 and you have all these uh, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, prostacyclines. And what do leukotrienes do? They cause bronchoconstriction. You don't want that, so you want to inhibit it. It causes more mucus production, so you probably want to inhibit that. And the classic one we use here is in the bottom. It's Montelukast. And Montelukast actually is going to be a receptor antagonist when we talk about the leukotriene pathway. Now, I did say there was going to be no more basic science, and I, I, I forgot about this slide, but this is a very, very important slide, so I apologize. So everyone's going to ask me, because on the boards, they're starting to test these things, which are the biologics. So when we talk about allergic asthma, how do I oversimplify immunology in literally one slide? Is yes, let's talk about allergic asthma itself. So remember, our immune system is the innate immune system, which is anything in contact with the environment. Our lungs are in contact with the environment based upon having macrophages in the lung. And then we have the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system definitely has uh, lymphocytes that are a part of it. And lymphocytes have two main categories, T cells and B cells. And when we talk about B cells, they turn into plasma cells that make antibodies. The most common antibody that we think about in allergic asthma is right here, IgE. And then when we think about T cells, well, there are different types. There are helper T cells, cytotoxic T cells. But when we talk about asthma, allergic asthma, we're really using the T helper cells, which are the CD4 cells. And the T helper cells have many, many different pathways. The pathway that's predominant in asthma is called the T helper cell 2 pathway, TH2 pathway, and allergic asthma. That's where the title came from. So when someone has allergic asthma, gets an asthma attack, what happens is that the antigen, will uh, be presented to the immune system by a macrophage and look who they make, IgE. IgE will bind to these T helper 2 cells, which are lymphocytes, and our friend, the mast cell. And it does that when the mast cell degranulates, you release histamine and tryptase, getting all those clinical manifestations of asthma. But you notice that T helper cells and mast cells release a lot of these things called interleukins. What does the word mean, interleukin? They interact with what? WBC. So that's how all these WBCs uh, communicate with each other are through interleukins. And there are three interleukins that you need to know for allergic asthma, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And all these interleukins, oh, what a surprise, they attack the main inflammatory cell in the airways of asthma, which is what? The eosinophils. In fact, some of the interleukins itself, 4 and 13, directly affect their airway itself. So what do we do here, everyone? is that we have drugs that actually block almost everything. Drugs that block IgE, omalizumab. We have three FDA-approved drugs that block interleukin-5. And we have one FDA-approved drug that blocks interleukin-4 and 13. 4 and 13. That's going to be brand name Dupixent. And when we talk about when do we consider any of these drugs, the bottom line point is for allergic, allergic, allergic asthma, 
That's going to be moderate to severe in intensity. And it's going to be refractory to traditional medical therapy, meaning inhalers, such as uh, long-acting beta-2 agonists and inhaled corticosteroids. So you want to do traditional things first, and then you would consider using one of these biologics. And I'll talk about the specific indications to use one of these three biologics. The only three are IgE blockers, interleukin-5 blockers, or an IL-413 blocker. So with that being said, let's talk about the most common one, which is uh, omalizumab, which goes by the brand name Zolaire. So if you want to use uh, omalizumab on the boards, you got to have moderate to severe persistent asthma, refractory to medical therapies, allergic in nature, but they got to have a very elevated IgE level. You got to have an elevated IgE level. Then you would consider using the medication. It's a shot. And nowadays, it actually got approved to doing it at home. But um, traditionally, we do it in a healthcare setting because we do worry about anaphylaxis. You do have to, meaning the patient has to carry an EpiPen just in case, even in the future, they develop some anaphylaxis from it. And it's dosed based upon your IgE level and weight, IgE level and weight. So this is when you consider using a medication like this. I mentioned IgE. So here's a question for everyone. Should you follow these IgE levels after starting Zolaire? My hair, let's do a quick poll. Good. So you guys are great. The answer is no. You don't want to follow those because what will happen to IgE levels um, after you start Zolaire, a drug that blocks IgE from binding to the mast cell? Yeah, IgE levels will go what? They go up. And sometimes you see a level go up. What might you do? Increase the dose, increase the frequency. So when we talk about dosing Zolaire, we do that based on how are they doing clinically. Most of my patients will get Zolaire every three to four weeks, if not more spaced out. So let's kind of clump together the IL-5 blockers. Uh, the ones that got FDA approval are mepolizumab, benarolizumab, rezulizumab. And yes, I hate saying the names of these drugs. The most common one I've only seen on your boards is the top one, mepolizumab, that goes by the brand name Nucala. And when we talk about when would you use one of these drugs, so it's moderate to severe persistent allergic asthma, refractory to medical therapy. Now, these folks will not have an elevated IgE. If that's the answer, if that's the case, you'd give Zolaire on the boards. These will have peripheral eosinophilia. So you get a CBC and you see the peripheral eosinophilia, you could use one of these three drugs. One is not better than the other. And when I think of these drugs, I will start with one. If they don't respond to it, instead of just, you know, giving up on IL-5, I'll try another one. If that doesn't work, I'll try another one before giving up on the IL-5 inhibitors. But the most common one I probably use, the one I see on the boards is mepolizumab. It just came out first. And all these drugs put together are, they're targeting IL-5 that targets eosinophils. And all these now are actually dosed by subcutaneous injection, except rezolizumab, which is given through an IV infusion in a lab. Then the last one is the IL-413 inhibitor. It goes by the brand name Dupixent. And this one is also an auto-injector. It's the first one to give auto-injector at home, though the other ones now have done that. And when would you use Dupilumab? Is once again, it's a severe allergic persistent asthma, and they are refractory to generalized medical therapy. They don't have an elevated IgE. They may have peripheral eosinophilia, but then you'll just say, well, how do you choose an IL-5 versus this? But the IL-413 inhibitors 
actually got FDA approval for the last bullet point here if patients are going to be steroid dependent. So, you know, steroids are just, you know, they do what they do, but they have so many side effects. So if you have someone who's steroid dependent, a lot of side effects from being on steroids, then you could use uh, a medication like this, which is uh, Dupixin. Uh, you could get, they got the FDA approval for that. And this is a subcutaneous injection. You, you inject it every two weeks. And I put a little buzzword down here. I always like to integrate throughout medicine. Dupixin also got approved for eosinophilic esophagitis. When you do GI, think about someone who presents with dysphagia and they have a lot of eczema and a lot of signs of allergic asthma. Think about this medication. So bronchothermoplasty is a procedure. And did it get approved for severe persistent asthma? Don't worry about this, Mahir. The answer is yes, or I wouldn't talk about it. Got approved in 2010. And this is a, why do we do this? Is once again, people with moderate to severe persistent asthma, it got approved for both allergic and non-allergic, but with all the biologics, I seldom use it for that. I mainly use it nowadays for the non-allergic and basically use a catheter that heats up the airways. And why do I want to heat up the airway? is because it prevents the smooth muscle from being hypertrophied and occluding the airway. So it reduces uh, smooth muscle remodeling. The procedure itself, there's three separate procedures. So you have to come in almost a month apart. So it's definitely commitment on the patient's part to do this. Uh, the benefits is reduction in steroids, reduction in ER visits, better quality of life. It's not a mortality reducing procedure. So it is invasive, it is a procedure. So this is always last line. So drugs to be careful for in asthma, I have to mention aspirin. Uh, people with aspirin alert allergies can get very severe asthma attacks. Remember Sanford's triad, which is always going to be that combination of nasal polyps, asthma, and aspirin intolerance. Of course, worry about non-selective beta blockers. And I put ACE inhibitors here. Why? Because ACE inhibitors may cause what? Cough. Right. Remember that bradykinin. So maybe you think their cough is asthma when it could just be the ACE inhibitor. And the last thing on asthma over here is that there's some asthma related diseases. And I call those the EOS plus IgE. That's what makes it. That's how it kind of gets niched towards asthma. So the two things that jump to mind is ABPA. So when I think of ABPA, this is going to be uh, acute bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. This is not invasive aspergillus. This is kind of like having an allergy to the aspergillus antigen. If you want to make the diagnosis, it has major and minor criteria. Some of the key things are history of asthma. I don't really do skin testing as much, uh, looking for skin tests to aspergillus. What I do now is actually check the total IgE and especially IgE to aspergillus. They can have bronchiectasis that's central in nature. And when we talk about this, how do we treat it? steroids, steroids, steroids. If they're having a flare, we do use antifungal medications such as itraconazole and boriconazole, more as steroid sparing agents. But this is a hypersensitivity to aspergillus. And think about asthma disease with EOs and elevated IgE. The other one here, formerly was known as Turk-Strauss. Now we call it EGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis polyangiitis. And it is a small vessel vasculitis. So of course, Think of EOs and IgE, but also think of being PNCA positive. Think of anti-myeloperoxidase positive. Think of all the findings of a small vessel vasculitis. They could have neuropathy. They could have skin findings like levito reticularis or palpable purpura. They could have glomerular involvement where they could get a rapid glomerular nephritis. They could have pulmonary capillary involvement where they could have hemophysis. 
And how do you treat it if you're flaring? Of course, steroids, steroids. But this is interesting down here, Nucala, which is mepolizumab, which is an interleukin-5 inhibitor, also got FDA approval for uh, eGPA. So I thought that was very interesting. A nice little beyond the pearl for the board exams. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.